Hey, thanks for tuning in to another special edition of the Christ Alone podcast. This will be the fifth week in a six-week series on the Gospel of Mark. Um, If this is your first one, uh, take the time to go back and start at the beginning. We are working all the way through the Gospel of Mark, like I said, just in six weeks. Taking time to read through the entire text, which we're doing uh, live together so that we can kind of hear the Gospel aloud and get the full scope of of the Gospel. So we're going to take time after some introductory remarks here by me to then just go ahead and and hear all of uh, chapters 11, 12, and 13 of the Gospel of Mark. If you've stumbled onto this podcast and would like more information on the Gospel or anything else um, about Christ alone and what we're doing here on this podcast, get a hold of me on Facebook. It's probably the easiest way to message me on there. You can find me at facebook.com backslash dolichek, spelled D-O-L-E-C-H-E-C-K, and find the other podcast at the podcast feed, which is Christ Alone, all one word, christalone.podbean.com. So I would love to get your feedback on any of your thoughts, questions, concerns, inquiries about anything you hear on this Bible study, and, and look forward to hearing from you. Without any further ado, let's get into the Bible study. Uh, take a nice, uh, easy stroll through these three chapters of the Gospel of Mark, uh, 11, 12, and 13. Um, if you didn't read this stuff on Facebook, Tess had some really, what I thought were uh, good, fun questions for my sense of fun. And uh, whatever that means. But uh, there's just some good conversation. Melissa commented again something last night about it. And I haven't been able to spend much time us just kind of having an open discussion because we're trying to get through 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And so it's forced us, mainly me, to be just trying to fly through things. But there was some really good conversation going on about this this high demand that Jesus, when you read your Bible, you find it really is out there. And what are we supposed to do with, um, oh yeah, there's your outlines there. What are we supposed to do with this? Um, well, Tess's question on Facebook was, um, I'm afraid that I love my family more than I love Jesus, essentially. Like if, if someone had a gun to my head, which is, of course, hyperbole speaking, but not necessarily that's the way it's going to happen. But, you know, what would I choose? And um, really sitting, Melissa then answers back, you know, just kind of we were, we were asking the question, um, is it not uh, is the it's not that when things go wrong, I don't cry out to God. But so much of the time when things are going OK in my life, I have this kind of um kind of guilt but but a, a pang of conscience of I don't really if things are fine I don't really cry out to God and I mean I don't know if anybody else had any more thoughts that had read about that and wanted to kind of spitball some ideas or concerns or just what you thought um, the the thing that I want to make sure that I'm always pressing is is these two things that I talked about last week of having the full weight of the law, which which does have, and we're going to see here in the great commandment in our chapters for this week, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And that when Jesus says that, he doesn't mean, you know, think God's a swell guy. He's saying God deserves all of your affection. God deserves all of your love, all of your honor, all of your glory. Other places Jesus talks about that uh, you really should hate your mother, father, brother, sister, wife, and children in comparison. Anyone who doesn't hate them uh, is not worthy of me. So we don't want to take those hard edges off and just say, well, I think Jesus was just kind of, you know, just making, you know, it isn't that big of a deal. I don't want to put that away. But at the same time, I don't want to crush everybody <laughs> that feels like I don't love Jesus that much. And so what am I supposed to do? Because the reality is you, you don't want to just say, oh, those things don't matter. But the other side is you don't want to negate the reality of what Christianity is about is not us checking off our to-do list to make God happy. The gospel comes to us because of the reality that we have and are falling short. And so our only hope then is in trusting in a rescuer. And so we don't want to, and I don't want to ever send you away from a Wednesday night Bible study or if I ever preach on a Sunday morning, send you away under this weight of burden. I, I want you to be crushed by the law and use to see your shortcoming, but then ultimately to see that the the grace of God is that this is not about my performance, but about the one who performed for me, which which is Jesus. And that that's where we want to rest and have our hope. So Philippians, I didn't get this before we came. I was going to, but just one passage I wanted to share in regards to that, I think is in Philippians. Yes, Philippians chapter 3. So it's an epistle that's further back from Mark. If you've got one of these Bibles, it's a 1634. But Paul is kind of addressing this issue, and he's talking about the joy that he has in just having Christ. And in verse 12, he, he says that, Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of these things, or such a view of things. Um, but, you know, when we started the meta narrative way back when in my living room, one of the things I was trying to impress on us is that this is about repentance. And we've talked about it a lot with the Gospel of Mark, with John the Baptist and the disciples coming on the scene and Jesus preaching repentance. And so when you when you have that category of repentance, it allows you to really sit under the high demand that is there and also to know that this is not about my pulling myself up at my bootstraps or buckling down and getting to work. This is about me seeing who I am clearly, seeing Jesus and who he is clearly, and resting in who he is for me, not in my own works. Repentance, turning from my shortcomings and trusting in Christ. Mark chapter 11. All right, I will say a prayer. We will read all three chapters and then quickly work through what's what's there so let me say a prayer father i thank you for the opportunity to gather here tonight um our desire my desire 
um, beyond trying to teach even here, God, is, is I want to see you clearly. I want to know you. I want to see you for who you are. I want to see myself for who I am, that I might rest in the rescuer, that I might rest in who you are for me. And so in all the conversation that we have tonight and the interesting points that are brought up and the interesting things that we think about, none of it is worth anything or has any value if it doesn't cause us to be drawn near to you. And so the prayer we want to pray, God, tonight is just give us eyes to see you. Ask for your Holy Spirit to be in this room, working in our hearts, convicting us of sin, that we might be quick to repent and quick to trust in the one who is our Savior. So do your work in our hearts as we work through these chapters of your inspired word. Uh, we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to his roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so, anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, 
And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He Again he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? But, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died left no offspring, and the second took her and died and leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong." And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole or burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation, that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. 
And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or Look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels, and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Um, go ahead and make a note of things that you maybe uh, hadn't really read through before or have thoughts about and questions on so we can make sure we get to them as well. We'll kind of just work through this just systematically according to your outline. I just have uh, a list of things kind of going along. We'll just kind of approach them as they come up. Uh, we have a further shift in this part in the gospel, at this point in the gospel of Mark where uh, we're now going to in the last five chapters. So basically the last third of the book is going to deal with this last week of Jesus's life. Uh, and all the gospel writers, they they pay attention to this last week of Jesus' life. This is the important week. I mean, this is what's really going on. I mean, we've had miracles, and they lost time at the gospels. You'll find typical accounts of different events, uh, feeding of the five thousands, and all the accounts. Uh, Christmas is in how many gospel accounts? Any guessing? Two. That's a good. Great. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Matthew and Luke. Sorry, I didn't put you on the spot. Matthew has uh, the account of Christmas, and Luke has the account of Christmas, but Mark doesn't. We didn't read the Christmas story in this gospel, and John doesn't have it either. But none of them miss out on the last week of Jesus' life. So, sorry, Christmas in a few weeks. Uh, it's a, the incarnation of Christ is very important, but the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, is all really leading to this week here. And so this is where we start, is the approach now to Jerusalem. This is where Jesus has been heading this whole time. We've asked the question many times along the way, why is Jesus keep telling them to be quiet, right? We want, what's, he heals somebody, he says, don't tell anybody, you know, and he kind of uh, has them all remain quiet. Well, here you see, he gives it up. He's no longer concerned about staying quiet. He doesn't hush anyone they come into the Mount of Olives. They come into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, and and have a big parade basically for Jesus. This is Palm Sunday, right? So here, this is the Palm Sunday text, and there's there's so much imagery here 
about I mean, we read this and we think, well, this is this is interesting. They put their cloaks and they put palm branches down. He's riding on a, a colt, you know, okay, or a donkey. Okay, that's fine. They say this Hosanna, they sing a song to him. Well, that's a nice parade. But there's there's really um I was gonna say essential, but just really fascinating imagery going on here, fulfillment of what's going on when the Messiah comes. So there's lots of things we could look at, and we don't have time for all the cross references, but coming from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem was a was a prophecy of where the Messiah was going to come. You know, there's the the end times thing where the Mount of Olives is going to be split in two. And this is where the Messiah is going to come from, is from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 9 is one of the one of the interesting places to go. Zechariah is way at the back of your Old Testament. But Zechariah 9, 9, uh, I think 9, 9, now that I say that, yeah. The coming king of Zion says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the idea that Jesus shows up riding on a donkey, it's not because, well, couldn't get a horse, so I guess we'll just take a donkey. There's some real significant imagery coming along with the idea of riding this donkey. Solomon rides in to Jerusalem on his father's donkey. There's something, a parallel account, or some other account in First Kings or Second Kings, about a guy riding in on a donkey. Oh, 2 Kings 9, 13. And so there's just lots of imagery in the in the, the cult. The palm branches, Judas uh, Maccabee, uh, you know, the Catholic Bible has the Apocrypha, Deuterocanonical books. They're not in our canon. They're not inspired scripture according to a Protestant evangelical view of the Bible. That means anything to you. <laughs> They're not considered inspired word of God, but they have history. And there's the story of the Maccabean revolt. And when Judas comes in to, to throw out the authorities, they lay down palm branches for him. To, and that became kind of like their flag of victory was this palm branch. And so Jesus shows up and they're looking for him to be this Messiah, this Savior, this one who's going to overthrow the Roman authorities in Jerusalem. And so they, he comes in right on a colt from the Mount of Olives. They get their cloaks and their palm branches and they lay them down and he walks over them and they sing this Hosanna. This comes from Psalm 118. There's five psalms in, in this area. And I, don't, I won't get this right, I suppose, if I just try to make it up. So, But there's... Um, and there's a certain type of psalm that they sing on their way to Jerusalem and to, to this, this Passover event or whatever. But So Psalm 118, as we're at verses 25, we see, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they're singing this messianic psalm of the king showing up hosanna save us blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord they add blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david but jesus is just flat out okay with them saying now at this point the king is here humble riding on a donkey uh he's showing up and the crowd is excited for him 
questions, thoughts, what you guys think about Palm Sunday. He's finally seemingly accepting their um, identity of identifying him as a king anyway. Right, but aren't most of the people that praised him right then are the ones that are yelling crucify him and just a few hours, you know? Right, and people, that's often, we don't really know this crowd, and I I know, I mean, I've heard that before. A guy that I was listening to that I respect a lot, was. this is likely, we kind of have, um, we have this group that's probably traveling with them to Jerusalem, probably Galileans, possibly, and so who's crucifying him is likely the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the Jewish court, and they pay people off. Um, so maybe, but yeah, they, it could be that they're a fickle crowd, or it could be that this crowd is, this is the crowd who's traveling with him. He's coming from Bethpage and Bethany, and it wasn't in this account, but um, Jesus resurrects a man from the dead named Lazarus, and he has sisters named Mary and Martha, and the town they live in is Bethany. Not Missouri, but Bethany, <laughs> east of Jerusalem. And so he's he's well known in this Bethany and Bethpage, which is likely just a little bit closer to Jerusalem from Bethany. He's well known in these places. And so likely this is the crowd from those towns, uh, probably about a, a two hours walk or so into Jerusalem, um, or two miles walk into Jerusalem. It's probably that crowd that's that's crying out to him. But yeah... It, the tide does change <laughs> for Jesus where he's coming in as his king and then it doesn't quite go the way they all think it's going to play out. But there's the, he finds the colt. They have, and there's imagery here with the tying up of the colt. Other accounts have two donkeys and or they have a young colt and its mother. And so some people, sometimes people will say, well, Bible's full of errors. Is it one donkey? Is it two donkeys? Your Bible is messed up. And so, I mean, the, the logical explanation there is that he was, and there's imagery also with out of uh, riding on a donkey that's never been ridden on before because that's a, a donkey that's considered holy or sanctified or separated because it's never been ridden on before. But to keep a colt that's never been ridden on before calm, you wouldn't lead it along its mother with its mother. And so likely he was riding on this colt, this foal of a donkey, going into Jerusalem. So anyway, that's the triumphant entry, triumphant, triumphant, triumphal approach. Thoughts, questions, concerns, interesting, whatever. Jesus goes into the temple. I didn't leave you any time to answer that. So <laughs> Jesus goes into the temple. He looks around and he leaves. And that's a little bit of a... Dun, 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 because he walks in, he looks around, and it's going to get real tomorrow. And they walk back out to probably to Beth, or to, they walk back out to Bethany, and then they head back in uh, after, he kind of looks around, figures out what he's going to do. And then we have this interesting account of Jesus clearing out the temple. There is this, I was going to bring Fig Newtons for like, I don't know, so I could, like it's my... You like fig newtons? I thought they're kind of gross. They seem dry, isn't they're they? Gross. We know, oh, no. They, no, they're gross. That's good. Okay, I haven't had one forever, so I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I mean, I I eat about anything, so I probably would like them. Nutrient bars. <laughs> they taste kind of different. <laughs> so we have fig trees, clearing of the temple, fig tree. Right? You see this. Uh, 
syncopation. You see this kind of sandwich, a fig sandwich. Talk about a fig Newton. Here's a sandwich that's got the fig on the outside and the clearing of the temple on the inside. And so there's something going on there that Mark's making a point. Hey, this fig tree miracle has something to do with the clearing of the temple. Jesus is accomplishing something in his miracle. This is the only miracle. I mean, the first 10 chapters we were going through, there's a miracle every other turn, right? Casting out a demon, healing someone, uh, making bread into feeding thousands, walking on water. And all of a sudden, like, all of that stuff kind of stops, except here we have a miracle, and it's a miracle of destruction, so it's kind of like things are taking an interesting turn here, aren't they? Of here Jesus curses a, a fig tree and it dies. Jesus is frustrated with this fig tree, or frustrated may not be the right word, but what the account tells us is he goes and he's it's it's a fig tree that appears like it should have fruit on it, though it's not the seasons for figs, but he sees a fig tree in leaf. So it's a tree that has the appearance of health. But then when he gets up to it, it really has got nothing to it. It's all a show, and it has no real meat to it. It has no real fruit. And then he goes into the temple, and there's a big production going on, selling lambs, selling doves, selling all these things, money changing for temple tax and all of this stuff going on. Lots of activity, but nothing really fruitful. And Jesus rebukes, turns the tables over, cleans it out, because there is this appearance of activity, of religious activity, that really is not anything. It's bearing no real fruit. And there's, the, there's kind of the flanking of this fig tree around this cleansing or the clearing of the temple. Um, a lot of things we could talk about. This is like this is a Gentile area of the temple that he's in. So this quote here, he says, "Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations?" Has anyone seen that verse in this church anywhere? The the little plaque leading back to this to the chapel says, "Shall my house not be called a house of prayer?" And it leads back to the chapel. I just saw that tonight. I'm like, "Well, look at that, huh?" It's out of the Matthew account, but it's out of the Matthew account. But it's well, my house will be called a house of prayer. For all nations, it's talking about there the Gentile the Gentile inclusion into what God is doing there at at the temple, the inclusion of the Gentiles. But he he throws tables over. So, what do you guys think? Questions, thoughts? Guy, she's mad. Yeah, I think as a whole, these last three verses have been, or last three chapters uh-huh. are very. I don't want to say pessimistic. Because for lack of a better word, but it's a lot different of a mood or tone than what we read there prior. And we were talking about how he came in and he was accepting of all of these. This is the king. He was accepting of that title. And I wonder if maybe it's because he's like, oh, these are. I know how these people really feel. How they really feel about me. Mm -hmm. What's my ultimate? Yeah, they've been questioning him. They've been questioning him. It. Where is Jesus showing up at? I mean, we've changed locations big time. We don't, it's tough to get this, but he's not out ministering to the masses at this point. He's showing up to religious, I mean, Disney World. This is, this is the center of all culture. This is the center of all religion. I mean, this is where if you were a Jew, this is where your pilgrimages went to. This is where your sins were forgiven. Now, 
we take it so lightly in our culture, this idea of your sins being forgiven. I mean, and I, I can't, I'm guilty as the rest, but we just, we don't, we don't deal with the weight that previous cultures did, that they, the Bible tells us to, this heavy weight of, I have transgressed and I'm deserving of judgment and I need justification. And so they had a whole sacrificial set system set up in the temples where you went to get all of this done. I mean, you ever read in your Bible through the year program, you go to Leviticus and it's at the tabernacle and there's all the sprinkling of blood and blood on your right lobe and on your right thumb and on your right toe. And then you get blood splashed on you. I mean, it was a big deal for the forgiveness of sin. So this is the center of all of that religious practice that Jesus is now showing up and saying, all of that religious practice is empty. It's all empty. It's It's got show and no fruit. The real temple is Jesus. The real place that you now, he's, there's this destruction of the temple in a spiritual way that's happening, that's changing from a Jerusalem-centered faith to a Christ-centered faith. We have no holy land. We have no pilgrimages to make. We, you know, we, we could have church in my house. We could have church at the man cave at the Dodges. We can have church in, in, here in a, in a church building. You know, we have no holy place. We are not a, uh, a geographical-centered religion. We are a Christ-centered religion. And so there's a lot. This He is taking a serious tone because there's some very revolutionary things happening here. Jesus is changing everything. He's messing up their money, too. Well, yeah. I mean, that money and religion always gets tied up at some point, <laughs> unfortunately. And, and false teachers and money always get tied up at some point. And they are absolutely... Um, they're, cashing in, they're cashing in. I mean, there's no, there's no way around. And you can read the history of how they actually treated. You had to buy a special temple coin. You couldn't bring in foreign coin. So there was money changers. They were changing your money out for temple money, and it was lucrative. And then they, they had you where they needed you because you needed a sacrifice because you've traveled how many days in. You didn't bring livestock or doves or anything with you, so you had to buy the sacrifice. Well, it's like being in an airport. You ever buy a, buy a sandwich in an airport and then you go get off property and buy a sandwich? It's like half the price or a third of the price. You know, they got you right where they want you. You can't leave. You've checked in $6 for a Happy Meal, you know, whatever. It's outrageous. But anyway. <laughs> yes, you can't take, a, can't take a beverage in and all of a sudden coffee becomes the most expensive drink in the world. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the cleansing of the temple. We probably should take a... A, a minute to look at this prayer. I mean, does anybody, what does everybody think about that? I mean, and I just say, did it catch your ear when he says in verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. You guys are just totally like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. No one's no, like, that stood out to me. okay, yeah, all I right. Will, I underlined that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that be one of those things where he like really believes strongly that we t- we've talked about this before when he's like when he's just like okay you're healed you believe you feel you're healed mm-hmm. and that's that was hard for me to grasp but now he's just like eh, whatever. What could he be meaning there? Do you think he's? I mean, and here's it, I, this is a proof text that lots of um, I'll call segments of Christianity that would use to what I think is promote false doctrine about prayer and faith and getting what you want essentially 
that if you pray and you have enough faith, because he says if you believe you've received it, it'll be yours. And so uh, I don't want, I, don't, I won't mention names. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But there are certain teachers that talk a lot about, you know, you confess that I already have it. And so your prayers, prayers about I pray for, and then I just believe that I've already got what I prayed for. And then that's supposed to magically now pull the uh, marionette strings on God that he now gives you what you want. And does that what Jesus means? Don't answer yes, because it isn't. <laughs> that's, that's not what he means, right? I mean, and we know this from other places we could go to. Jesus is going to get in the garden at Gethsemane, and he's saying, God, if you could take this away from me, let's do something else. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Um, and, so, and we could go to lots of places. But what's he talking about here? Because he does say this, right? Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours. What in the world is he talking about? Maybe he's talking about <laughs> forgiveness? Hey, I, thank you. That's, I mean, so I did not get this out of a commentary, and I, so don't not, do not take this like to the bank or whatever. But when you look at the context, verse 25 is talking about forgiveness of sin. When he says this weird thing about throwing this mountain into the heart of the sea, what is, what is, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. There's some imagery. One of the guys I was listening to was talking about in Isaiah. Have you ever listened to the Messiah by Handel? They talk about every every valley will be lifted up and every high place will be will be uh, leveled. And it talks about the leveling of, leveling of the ground before the Messiah, that it becomes... A straight path. There's some of that imagery going on, but what mountain is Jesus around? He came from the Mount of Olives, but he also is just coming away from the Temple Mount. And Jerusalem is strategically kind of placed that it's on a mountain. Like you, the Psalm has the Psalms, the songs of ascent. And the reason why they're called songs of ascent, they were songs they would sing on the way to Jerusalem. And no matter where you came to, from Jerusalem, you were always ascending. You were going up to the temple. It's on a mount. Right now, the, the Muslim Dome of the Rock is on the Temple Mount. And there's So there's a Jesus, and we're going to get into this in, I don't know when, chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse and the destruction of the temple. The temple, the, the place where they receive their forgiveness of sin is going to be wiped out. It's going to be destroyed. Not a stone's going to be left. In 70 AD, this happens. In real life, the temple is destroyed. The Jewish temple is not there. They have that Western Wailing Wall now. But the, the center for their forgiveness of sin is gone. And Jesus here is addressing that. I think he addresses it certainly here. Or Mark addresses it in the next couple chapters over. But then he also, just what Tess was looking at, is talking about this praying and if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And so going back to what I was saying about how the forgiveness of sins doesn't sit very heavy on our hearts anymore, watching this temple be destroyed, watching Jesus go in and clear out the money changers and saying that my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, seeing all these things go on, Jesus could be, I'm not going to say he is, but he could be talking about I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, could that be forgiveness of sin? Believe that you have received it and it will be yours, that there is such a thing as forgiveness of sin in Christ. And so there is a sense of that, 
that that's what this big issue of prayer could be devoted towards. The other thing I thought of was the Lord's Prayer. There's some petitions there, right? Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day, or give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And so huge in the Lord's Prayer is this, there's not very many lines. Two of them are dedicated to being forgiven as you forgive. And so it had a bigger place in their minds. Like prayers, I mean, how much how much time in your prayer life is spent petitioning God for the things you'd like to see happen? And how much is is repentance? Like we talk, God, I confess I do not love you like I know that I should. This this person I maybe care I, I have them in a place that is idolatrous or I tied to money or whatever I have and how much of it is spent to repentance and forgiveness, which is what Jesus says that when you pray, believe you've received it and it will be yours. It is what Christ has come to do. Any other thought? We got to move on because we're not getting anywhere. I thought this would be better to me not to just ramble on and not go ahead and open it up and it's taking way too long. So we have the authority of Jesus question. I think it's interesting, but he's just kind of like he punks them and he's like, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. They don't want to do that. Parable of the tenants. Uh, very interesting. Um, yeah, how would you like to be the servants that keep getting sent? Uh, yeah, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. What's up? So he sends, and so he sends the son. What's he talking about here? Jesus. Jesus is the son. Who are the other servants? John the Baptist. Yes, I'd say he's a good one. The other prophets, the other Jeremiah. I mean, the Judaism. They know their Bible, and their prophets came along, and they didn't like them, and they did all sorts of horrible things to them. And and so yes, they keep having. God has prepared this wonderful of wine uh, vineyard for them, and then He's going and sending people to collect His whatever His due, and they just they. They beat people up, they kill them, and then finally he sends the son, and they kill the son. The question, well, two of the questions that somebody asked that I thought were good were um, to try to make this a little applicable, because we're not the Jews who are killing prophets, but how resistant are we to God when he is trying to, um, how long have you re- resisted the tug of God. How long have you resisted God showing up, showing you himself, and you're kind of like, I'm going to kick that one to the side, and maybe tomorrow I'll, I'll take God seriously. How how resisting are you? And then in what ways do you assume what's God is actually yours? What they were doing is God had made this vineyard, and he rented it out to these people. They were stewards, and they began to treat it like as though it was theirs and not God's. And there is some comparison there of what in your life do you, that's really God's. Absolutely. I mean, everything you steward. When it comes to children, it comes to your job, it comes to mar- your, your spouse, when it comes to friendships, when it comes to yourself, yourself yeah. absolutely. That how, how much of your mind is geared into this is mine <laughs> instead of realizing none of this is mine. This is nothing. I have, I'm like guaranteed none of this. Huh? It's kind of hard to like grasp. It's hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is. I mean, that, that, that the, the fullness of the earth is God's and everything that is mine comes to me by his gracious hand. 
but I very quickly become a, stu a tenant that um, that uh, begins to act like these things are mine and not God's. And then I begin to clutch them and push God away uh, instead of honoring him with what he has given me a steward. So anyway, a few things there. This, the piece that he says right here, it's a stone the builders rejected yeah, so has become the capstone. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about himself. He is, yeah. He's the, he's the yeah. capstone. He's the... And he's going to be marvelous in our eyes. Yeah, that's right. He's talking kind of future. Like, that's what he's, yes. They're going to cast him away. How are they going to cast him away? They're crucifying him. They're going to kill him. That's them throwing away the stone. Yeah. And then he becomes the capstone. He becomes the, the stone, stone that ties it all church. together. Yeah, he becomes everything that ties it together. If you build blocks with a kid, they're terrible at it. And then you have to finally, you kind of, you kind of watch them and then you look for where, okay, I'm going to put... I'm gonna put this one Lego block at the top, and it, tie, it holds them all. I mean, you know, if you kind of govern it a little bit, you put on a capstone. You have to build a good base. Come on. I know, but there's there's that there's that capstone. We we've got these cardboard blocks, and they're the worst yeah. things for building. You cannot build a wall unless you do some corners, and then you cap them together. Anyway, this is what Jesus says. So, taxes to Caesar, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's that's good. Marriage at the resurrection. We got to move quickly. Yeah, we got marriage of the resurrection is really interesting. They're trying to they're trying to trip him up, and he's just like, you don't get it. Um, my grand, I almost that someone that I know <laughs> uh, had had this belief that um, we when we die are going to be like angels, and it was coming from this text that when we die we will be like angels in heaven. Right? It says this here. Um, there, verse 25. When the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. But they will all be like angels in heaven. Well, there you go. We're going to die and we're going to become angels. We're going to float around with wings and play flutes and, I don't know, do whatever. Glow. Glow, right, and haunt people occasionally, I guess, or something. This is specifically referring to the concept and the, the institution of marriage in the afterlife, that we will not be angels when we in the afterlife, we will have resurrected bodies. So we will be able to sit around a table and learn more about Jesus and maybe eat the most delicious breakfast pizza you've ever eaten and 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 be able to touch and be real. That's but anyway, so that's in there. But but marriage most scholars will say that their marriage will not exist in heaven. That and that's a bummer to a lot of us. We think, what? How is this even going to work? We cannot conceive of a world where that doesn't, I mean, happen. It's not that we won't know each other or even have a relationship with each other, but that's going to be better. So what is what they ultimately is going to be better, but but different. So anyway, moving on, the greatest commandment. We know this. We've heard this before. Um, Jesus sums it up. This guy's says this and he says you are you are very close to the kingdom of heaven love god with all your heart mind soul and strength or heart soul mind and strength everyone says it different and backwards and whatever so really high commands impossible commands yeah. you could say and uh this is where when somebody you know people talk about you know um i try to do what i i I try to. I love God. I try to love God with all my heart, and whatever. And you hear people that will say things like that. You kind of want to say, now when he says love God, he means with all your heart. And 
we and so we try to get soft edges off of that. And so we say, well, yeah, I love God with everything I got because I I I love God, but He's talking about with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the reality is, there isn't any of us that for a second of our life, because of the pollution of sin, the depravity of our hearts, that's ever loved God with every ounce of your being. This is a condemning thing, but the gospel comes in. But it also doesn't mean, okay, well, I haven't done it. I can't do it, so I guess I won't even bother trying. I don't really care. I'm just going to... I'm just going to trust Jesus and not care about loving God. No, that's not that's not the uh, that's not repentance or bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. But whose son is the Christ? Excellent stuff. Uh, more just. I thought the last part was really good. Which is the last part? The whole Thirty-eight through forty. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you he see things nowadays, and you're just like, oh my. That, like, touches home to a lot of things. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So many people, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a pastor or a religious leader who's this big, uh, exalted figure. Yeah, or it's... Or Paul. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. They love... I mean, Jesus is really going after religious, religious behavior. And, yeah, he's just laying them bare. Widows... But this is... This is a good psalm from David. It's, it's fun to research and look at. But we're going to have to move on. Widow's offering. And then chapter 13 is the Olivet Discourse, which we have left, I mean, not, we need, I mean, six weeks to talk about the Olivet Discourse because this is this is the coming of the end, right? If so it appears. So it appears. So I have within the last six months or so, come to some kind of new ways of reading this. Um, and I'll just share it with you briefly. There's there's different schools of thought on this Olivet Discourse. If you've read the Left Behind series or other things like that, they're heavily dependent upon a rapture happening and seven years of tribulation and then a second coming of Christ and then a millennial reign, and I've been so I've yes gone through all of this stuff, and and they're basing some of that stuff off of this Olivet discourse. There's the all millennial position, which is that we are in the millennium basically, and that what, and which is what I'm finding a lot of interest in right now. But he's talking here, chapter 13, as it starts off, they're leaving this temple, and his disciples say, "Look at these massive stones; they're magnificent buildings." And Jesus replies, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And he's talking about, he's prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, what year is this approximately? Jesus is saying these things. When was Jesus crucified? What year? 33. I mean, somewhere around there, right? We think he was 33. Probably born at the dividing line of BCAD. So this is 33. The temple is destroyed in AD 70. So he's about 40 years out from the t- temple actually being destroyed. But it's, it's a historical fact that the temple is destroyed and not a stone is left upon each other. And, and Jesus is prophesying it's going to happen. And then it really does. <laughs> I mean, and so it's kind of trippy. I mean, this is, this is who Jesus is. But so then you can read verses 3 through 31 as the signs of the end of the age as these are the things that are going to be happening leading up to this destruction of the temple. The reason why I say that is there's a few interesting verses. Um, verse 30, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, 
no one is left alive from this generation. They're all dead. And Jesus ain't back yet. So we got to do something with that. But anyway, there's a way of looking at this, I, and I think it's got a lot of interest to me, that is, this is prophesying the destruction of the temple. But then we jump to 32, and it says, no one knows about that day. Why would he have gone through all of this time saying, here's all the signs, and then, oh, by the way, no one's going to know that day. He's probably talking about something different there. And, and all of the Old Testament prophecies are talking about that day. The prophet Joel talks about that day, the coming day of the Lord. And at that day, no one knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. And there's a strict warning that comes in that says, you do not know when this is going to come, but uh, keep watch. You do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So Jesus ends again very seriously. <laughs> watch. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Jesus is returning. He is coming back. And will he find sleepers? Yeah. Will he find us sleepers? Pray no. <laughs> and, and, and wake up. And wake up. Stay awake. So that is not giving that any time that it probably deserves. So thoughts. When he talks about generation, could he maybe mean like, um, like how Moses, everybody was wiped out by the flood? Could he maybe mm -hmm. mean that as a generation? You know what I mean? So like this generation will still be here. You know what I mean? So like they have, we haven't been wiped out. I mean, I don't know. But I right. In the way. And the way a dispensationalist, which is, I mean, I'm, not, I'm sure you know, that, that the way that a certain view of eschatology would talk is that that generation, that term there doesn't mean a generation. It means possibly the Jewish religion. It means possibly um, the generations of man. This mankind will not pass away. That's the way they would do it. I think it takes a lot of backflipping to get there instead of just reading it generation. generation. This generation will not pass away. Jesus says that uh, for the transfiguration, he says that uh, you will see me in my glory or whatever, and um, or you'll see the kingdom of God come in power. People read that and think, well, what's that about? Well, following that, we have the transfiguration. And so there is some modern, there is some current fulfillment that we see happening, already happening. I mean, from this, from the Jesus's, uh, all of that discourse. But yes, that is a word that they kind of, um, that's where they have to go to try to explain how this could be future events. Further thoughts, questions? I think we find Jesus to be I don't know, different than the cultural Jesus that we're used to. And and it, it is, on one hand, a terrifying thing. And when they talk about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and they're in Proverbs 1, or whatever, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it could mean as, it could be seen as a cute statement. And, and there isn't meant to be this terror, but there is a sense in which God isn't playing around with 
humanity. And God isn't playing around with us, and Jesus isn't playing around. And religion is is not is not a cute side project. And when we come to read our Bible, it's not just about, oh, I want to learn how to manage my checkbook better and raise kids that mind me and things. Those are fine things, but that's not what this is about. That this is this is kind of serious business. That um, Jesus really was a king who showed up on a mission to die for the forgiveness of the sins of the world, and he is returning, and he he says, wake up. And he says, beware of having a religion that's like a fig tree. It's got lots of dressings on it, but when you get to the actual tree, does it got any fruit? Is there really anything to it, or is it all just show? There's a huge rebuke in that. There's a huge rebuke. I'm like, that makes me, I better really, because I'm standing here, pretending like I've got lots of leaves on my tree as I lead a Bible study. I, I want to make sure that this is not just to show that there's some real repentance and trust in Christ and who he is. So that's who we find Jesus to be. And it, it can be on one hand sobering, and it should be. We do not want to let it die there. Because on the other hand, we do have chapters 14, 15, and 16, which has a Savior going to the cross taking our sin upon himself so that the forgiveness of sins can happen so that we can be reconciled to this God so that this God who has great wrath against sin can have uh, forgiveness and joy and love toward us through the, through the work of Christ on the cross. We're way past time. I'll pray. Father, I, I, I want to... I think your word just demands us to have some sobriety, some soberness, some seriousness about these issues, not for the sake of trying to scare us or disappoint us or discourage us or make us fearful, but um, because you are real, because you created this world and it's, it's, you're, you're real and the things of life are not, um, just light realities that there's there's a real um, existence to you and to what you have done and what you are doing so just pray as we leave this place tonight god you would give us eyes to see you clearly give us eyes to see ourselves clearly that we might be quick to repent and run to you and eyes to see you clearly for the forgiving substitutionary sacrifice that you are with grace and mercy for for all men we pray these things in Jesus name amen